her. She's here. There she is. Yeah, always Judith is Pemberton has been uh, a key part of Count Me In, and Norm uh, drove the truck, and I drove a truck, and, and just a lot of great things. And I was reminded, though, throughout the day, as I had some conversations, had conversation with a neighbor who was watching us work on this elderly woman's home next door, um, just how powerful this is and how important it is for us. We talked last week about our hearts weeping over the community, and this is a way for that to be expressed. And so um, encourage you to be thinking about, again, in the spring when we do this again. Just such a wonderful, important thing. Um, another thank you, set of thank yous, I want to say, and thank you to all those who came out yesterday and did count me in, is to our setup crew this morning. So you might have noticed things were a little, there was something slightly different about the morning. Um, and that was because the van did not start this morning. And uh, we, you, know, you know and love our van. We call it Phineas after the guy in the Old Testament who set up the temple. Uh, and Phineas died this morning. And so um, we had to scramble. And uh, uh, Ann Bleckel was just, I mean, the, you know, it's, 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 part of it's the work, but the other part is the stress, right? Because it's on you. And you think of all these people coming to worship, and you want to create, set the table so that we can worship. And so when you're in that position, you just have to absorb all that stress. So, Ann, thank you for absorbing all that stress. <laughs> um, and, and then, of course, Dave Monk and Andrew Franklin uh, uh, jumped in and solved the, the issues. And a bunch of, I know those of you who are on the team, what's that? And Norm came, that's right, and helped us out. Uh, and so thank you for that. And pray for our van and music team, Miguel. I mean, these guys found a piano in the back corner somewhere and put it down because we didn't, couldn't use a keyboard and uh, some sound system or anything. So anyway, it's fun to see the church in action like that and just uh, praise God to be a part of a community that jumps, hops to it like that to serve and, and bless. But know that the table was set with a little extra angst this morning for you to be here. So let's pray. God, we do thank you for the community of faith that you've gathered together here. You are blessing us with friendships, with um, mission, with the opportunity to uh, be on mission with you in the world, in this city. Uh, And that's bearing fruit. Uh, People are seeing that, and it's opening conversations, gospel-centered conversations. So we thank you for that opportunity. We thank you for the growth that you're doing in us. We know sometimes when we go out and serve, um, the dent that we make in the overall needs in the world is very small. But the dent in our heart is very big. Our heart gets broken for what is in our community uh, just around us and for the people around us. And that is good and that is healthy and we want that more and more. We want to be like Jesus in that way. Uh, Who wept for Jerusalem as we're going to look at again this morning. Um, So continue to transform the heart of this congregation individually. uh, Transform the heart, the collective heart of our home groups uh, and the collective heart of the congregation at large. Just uh, ask that you would continue to, um, to guide us in that way and, and, and work on us, that we might be like Christ in the community. And I also pray, Lord, that you provide for the needs of this community as we continue to grow and we, we seek uh, how and where uh, to worship you best, um, to put all the pieces together, to minister our, to our children, um, to minister to uh, the, the home group leaders, the, the men and women in our community. Lord, I ask for your provision uh, to help us in all ways, the, the number of people to, to serve, to, to, to be a part of making things go, um, the resources that we need, the location, uh, all this stuff. We come to you together this morning and just ask that, again, you would see us through this next season of ministry with your tremendous provision. We know that uh, despite our weakness and our frailty, our sinfulness, you are 
doing things through his community of faith that are, be, that are a blessing to the community around us and a blessing to the people within this church. And we praise you for it. And we give you the glory because ultimately uh, we could do nothing without you, without Christ, without the Holy Spirit moving in us. Um, there's just, there, it's a pointless exercise. And so thank you for your faithfulness. And we ask for more and more of it. And we trust you for it in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, please? Luke chapter 19. If you do not have a Bible, we would love to pass one to you. Just raise your hand and we'll slip one to you. Uh, Somebody will come by and give it to you. In that particular Bible, it's on page 751 that we're going to be looking at this morning. This is Luke chapter 19. And we are making our way through the Gospel of Luke. In fact, I'm, you know, looking towards the end here. Um, Longest book in the New Testament. And we are going to be approaching the end of it uh, before, you, before you know it. Um, and so, uh, if, you haven't, if you haven't been with us the whole time we've been studying this, um, I've actually printed out some extra uh, overviews of the Gospel of Luke right here. Uh, come up afterwards, and I'd love to give you one of these. But it gives you sort of the whole arc of, of the Gospel of Luke. And there's a letter in there. Um, take care of that later. So, I uh, would love for you to, uh, to have that so that you can kind of get your bearing, especially if you're newer with us and, and you, you haven't been through the whole Gospel of Luke, you'll be able to kind of get your bearings with that. So, come up afterwards. I'd love to give you one of those and uh, talk to you about the Gospel of Luke in any way that you'd like. Now, we are at another critical turning point. This is why I've been thinking about these things, about the end of the Gospel of Luke and where we're headed. We're at a critical turning point. You remember back, if you were with us back in chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. That was a turning point in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, he'd been ministering uh, up in the north part of Israel, uh, and then now he's turning his, his, his face, and there was kind of a strong resolve to make his way to Jerusalem. And in that period between chapter 9 and 19, those 10 chapters, uh, what was going on is that Jesus was primarily encountering people in what I would characterize as open encounters. In other words, they were these encounters with people where there was the possibility for them to to come to faith in Jesus Christ or to experience some sort of radical transformation or healing. And, and, And Jesus' grace was on display. He was often going after the least of these, the people on the fringes, and just demonstrating his love and his compassion towards them. That was 10 chapters, really, uh, of those kinds of encounters, of those open kinds of encounters. And now we're making a kind of a turn where Jesus is going to continue to have encounters with others, but they're going to be a little bit different. Now, he came into Jerusalem, and, and, and Pastor Brent preached about that last week and uh, just gave us a great image of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And in that uh, approach to Jerusalem, Jesus is doing something different. He's disclosing himself with greater clarity than he ever has. You know, so this is the king coming into town. He's sort of making that clear to everybody. Um, whereas previous to that, he'd been sort of hiding sometimes uh, his identity a little bit. And so now he's making it clearer to everyone. And, and, and what we're going to see on the other side of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is that the encounters with him are less open, and they, I would say that they're more closed. Um, most of the encounters are going to be with the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees and the scribes. And there's a sort of a hardness in the relationship between Jesus and those leaders in the rest of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, because the, real, the, the encounters are more closed. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is who I am. And they're saying, we don't like it. And we want to destroy you. We want to get rid of you. And so the people are watching all of this take place. 
and they're kind of like us, and, and, and they, they're a foil kind of for us, and, and their, their thing is to decide, well, who am I going to side with? Am I going to side with the religious, religious leaders, or am I going to side with Jesus and believe him who he says he is? And, and so as we walk through this, it's kind of, that's going to be our approach a little bit, is, is who are we going to focus on? Who are we going to side with? Now, unfortunately, you know how the people decide uh, because it results in the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, but we have the opportunity to make our own decision as we watch this play out. Now, part of this, the closeness of it, this is kind of the reality of Jesus in the world that we have to grapple with. We all have to decide, what do we do with Jesus Christ? We all have to come to that place where we decide, what am I going to do with the person of Jesus Christ? You can't not decide. By not deciding, you are deciding. So for all human beings, we have to ask and answer this question, what am I going to do with Jesus Christ? It can't just be this endlessly interesting subject for debate and conversation where we just sort of talk about who Jesus is and endlessly until we die, and we never really make any, any conclusion or, or resolve the question. Um, and this is why we've set out in this year as part of our, our mission for this year, this commission, because we believe that as carriers of the gospel, um, it is incumbent upon us to go out into the community and force the issue a little bit. And that's what Jesus does in this section, to, to ask the question, what are you going to do with the person of Jesus Christ. We can't erase him from history. He just keeps popping up over and over again, and he demands an answer. Who am I? Who am I? And we all have to answer that question. And, and God has graciously given us, you know, all of us about 80 years or so uh, to answer that question on average, right? We have, a op- we have a long window, but that window will close. And we have to grapple with it. We have to answer that question. And, and that's kind of the tone of this new section, uh, is there's got to be some closure around the question of who Jesus is. And some people are going to close it in the wrong way, and some people are going to close it in a way that's going to be a blessing to them. Now, in this transitional text, there's an amazing combination, because it's both looking backwards on chapter 9 through 19, and it's looking forward on this, this next section with these kind of closed Encounters. And the amazing combination is that Jesus is shown to have this incredible compassion deep in his heart and also this intense resolve. And it's the combination of Jesus' compassion and his strong resolve that I want to think about uh, with you this morning. Um, Jesus is, is, is a bleeding heart kind of a man, right? He's weeping over Jerusalem. And yet the next thing we see, he's going to get into the temple and he's going to, he's going to cast out all of the money changers and the people in the temple because he has this, this strong resolve for the glory of God. And so it's the combination of these two. Um, John, in the Gospel of John, talks about it as grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and he's full of truth. And we ought to be that way too as followers of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to argue that, that that's something that God's going to use to bring the Gospel the question of who is Jesus to bear on the community around us as we become people who more and more are full of grace and full of truth, then God will use that in the community around us to bring the question of who Jesus is. Now, um, it's one of our core values as a church, actually. Grace and truth. Not grace, then truth. Grace and truth. That's the core value, one of the core values of our congregation. That we're a congregation that wants to hold on to, to the grace of God, but also not let go of the truth of Jesus Christ, the the grace of Christ and the truth of Jesus Christ. So um, this is good this morning because we get to unpack 
um, these texts, but also we get to think about it in relation to our congregation and one of the core values and elements of who we are and who we're striving to become. So let's look at this together. Starting in verse 41, chapter 9, verse 41. This will be a little bit of review. I'm rewinding to last week a little bit, and then we'll get on to the, the new part. Verse 41, And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, that's Jerusalem, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. We see this oftentimes in Scripture, that that we have this open window to choose what we're going to do with Jesus Christ. But at some point, um, God confirms our direction. You see this in the Old Testament. You see it with Pharaoh, for example, and his relationship to, to Moses. At some point, God confirms the Pharaoh in his rejection of Moses and of God. And at some point, we're confirmed. And that's kind of what death is. It's, it's confirming our, our answer to the question of who Jesus is. But until that time, it's open. But with, it, it, you see this over and over again, that, that God will confirm it. And that's what he've done, he's done now with the people in Jerusalem. They've turned away from Jesus. And now it's, it's being hidden from their eyes. Verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, think back to last week if you were here, and, and there's Jesus coming up the hill into Jerusalem, and he's weeping, and it says that he's He's, it's, 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 it's strong weeping. I mean, he's just, he's, he's, there's, you know, you can hear him and you can see him. It's, it's not just sort of this, this hidden weeping. It's, it's a strong word for weeping. And there's Jesus, and the crowds are cheering him at the same time because they think that he's going to come in and, and take over in a particular way. Um, and Jesus realizes they don't understand his ministry. They don't understand the time of his visitation. And so he's weeping for him that they will reject him and they will not um, respond to him in the way that they ought to. Uh, and, so, and so there's this, this, this destruction that will, that will come that Jesus tells them of, and it will reach unto the children, which means the furthest extent. That's the worst it could be. It'll reach under the children. And even the stones will not, go, will not, be, will not escape. Um, they'll, be, they'll be not left on one another, and, and that's referring to the temple. And so there's a completeness to this destruction that will be happening. And that's why Jesus is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. And so you have this juxtaposition between his intense weeping, which reflects back on these open encounters he's had with people to bring them in, and then the cheering of the people, which reflects forward, because soon they're going to be cheering um, not for him as king, but for his death on the cross. And so it's a superficial kind of cheering, these people, um, because it's going to be turned around. And so in Jesus, you've got both of these things. You've got this bleeding heart, but then you have this, what I would say, this spine of steel. Look at the next verse with me, verse 45. And he entered the temple, which is the house of God, right? Remember that the temple is the center of the universe for the people of Israel. It's where they meet God. That's where they they encounter, where, where God's presence is. And so it's a sacred place. And Jesus enters in to the area of the temple. And you should note that uh, in the rest of the New Testament, 
this concept of the temple is going to be refined because the building is going to be destroyed and Jesus is going to be known as the presence of God in the community. Jesus is the temple. Okay, so we're moving to a transition here. And then when Jesus dies and, and rises again, the language is going to become that the church is the temple and that then the individual Christian is also the temple. So this, this temple language is really important and we have to follow it through and it's all about the presence of God. Where is the presence of God? It's in Jesus Christ. It's in the church. It's in the individual Christian. Okay? So you, you have to keep this sense as we look at what, uh, what's going on here. So the temple is the center of the universe where the people meet God. And sacrifices are made there so that their relationship with God might be restored. In order to make those sacrifices, they need animals. Now, they're coming from all over Israel and they don't want to carry these animals with them. So what they do is they bring money instead, and they get into the temple, and they purchase the animals that they would need to sacrifice right there in the temple so they can sacrifice them. Now, there are other kinds of, of uh, sacrifices that could be made or offerings that could be made, uh, but the temple would only receive a certain kind of currency. So they would come with currency from around, be different currency. They could exchange it in the temple for the right kind of currency so that then they could make an offering in the temple. So they need both animals for sacrifice and need the right kind of currency so that they can make the offering in the temple. So there are people in the temple who are willing to kind of sell them the animals and trade the currency, right? Uh, now you can understand, though, how that system would be rife or potential for abuse. And that's what's going on in the temple, is that the people are abusing that system. So... Um, continue on in verse 45. And he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold. And the other Gospels tell us that he flipped over tables, very dramatic, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And it's like so often when Jesus has something really important to say, he quotes the Old Testament. And that's what he's doing here. There's two different quotes from the Old Testament. Just quickly, we'll, we'll look at those. Isaiah 56, 7, and we can put that up on the screen. And this is giving a picture of what the temple is supposed to be. So back in the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah, uh, preaching to the people of Israel, he says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant... These I will bring to my holy mountain, and listen to this, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, remember we talked about that's what Jesus has been doing, who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And so Jesus uses that reference to paint a picture of what the temple is supposed to be. It's supposed to be this joy-filled, open, gracious place that's, that, that people feel welcomed into and they're gathered under the name of Yahweh. And what's going on there is they're using the temple to make money off of each other. Sort of the opposite of what was intended for it. And so Jesus quotes another scripture to say, you've turned it into a den of robbers. This is Jeremiah 7, verses 8 and 11. Again, 
Back in the history of Israel, they were about to, to be exiled because of their disobedience. And Jeremiah the prophet's speaking to them. He says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, another god, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And so Jesus uses these two Old Testament passages to, to clarify what's going on in the temple, um, the travesty, the corruption that's going on in the midst of the temple. Um, and Jesus uses these scriptures to talk about it. He speaks truth into the circumstance. So he's compassionate and he's loving, and we've seen that. He's weeping for the people, but he's also not afraid to speak truthfully, even when it's harsh, into the midst of their context. And you, you, know, you think that somebody who would be so soft-hearted and, and such a loving, compassionate person might sort of let some things go. And that's the unique thing about Jesus Christ. He's full of grace and truth. He doesn't let it go. He speaks what needs to be spoken in the midst of the context. Grace and truth. Verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. So he continued on there. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging, hanging on his words. This is the dynamic that's really going to animate the rest of our study of the Gospel of Luke. And that is that there's a Jesus problem for these religious leaders. You can imagine them sort of watching from the outside and how all the people listen to Jesus is in the temple and he's speaking. Their place of authority is being threatened by his presence. They want to destroy him and do away with him. And they go off and you can imagine them talking about the Jesus problem. Right? What are we going to do with this Jesus character? We can do this, we can do this, we can do this. Yeah, but the people love him so much. They, they listen to his every word. They're hanging on his every word. We can't, we can't just easily do that. They'll re- rebel against us. And so they have a Jesus problem. How are they going to solve it? His words are just too delicious for them to go in and do whatever they want. People are they're dripping with truthfulness, and the people need to have it. Now they'll figure out a way, which we'll get to. But let me just say this about grace and about truth and about where we're becoming and who Jesus is making us as a community. Jesus' weeping heart, as he sits on that donkey going into Jerusalem, his weeping heart will lead ultimately to the cross. And his resolve, his truthfulness, will lead ultimately to judgment. And he holds these two in tension in a powerful way. Look with me in John 1, verse 14. I think we have it to put up there. Um, and the word of God, God, excuse me, and the word became flesh, and, and that the word is capitalized because it's referring to Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, grace is simply favor 
unmerited favor with God or with, with somebody else. In this case, Jesus, who's God. And truth is calling a spade a spade. It's, it's, it's outlining reality as it really is. And Jesus holds these two in perfect tension. He's the imperfect embodiment of both of them. And, and the combination of grace and truth is a very, very powerful combination. Um, if you take an individual or a movement, and let's just say they're completely full of, of grace, um, but no truth, and so they, they extend favor to everyone, but never spend time discerning between right and wrong, then that movement will, or that individual will lose a certain amount of his or her strength or its strength and, and power. If you take a movement, and we've seen this before too, that has no grace in it, it's all about truth and discerning right from wrong and, and speaking that into uh, whatever context, then what do you end up with? You end up with, with a group of people who stand on the sidelines, disconnected from everybody else, and just sort of, um, just sort of point out what's wrong with everybody else. Um, if you try even to sort of be partially full of grace and partially full of truth, that doesn't work either. If you say, you know, we'll be gracious when it serves us and we'll be truthful when it serves us, but we'll try to make sure and temper them so that, so that we, don't, we don't, you know, make too much of a splash, then, then we lose our witness too. But with Jesus, if we become full of grace and full of truth, it didn't say that Jesus was, was partially, full, par, was partial, had partial grace and partial truth. It says that he was full of both of them. Uh, if, 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 if we're full of both of them, then we then, then Jesus comes at us and we come at others like a tsunami of God's message and God's gospel. Um, and it causes a kind of confusion in people and, 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 and brings them to this place where they have to think about what's going on and who we are and what this gospel message is. The effect of grace and truth coming to us together is to, to gain a fresh hearing for the gospel. So when, for example, we're out in the community with Count Me In, we're working on somebody's house, and a neighbor says, I can't believe what you're doing. Why are you doing this? And they ask the question, what do you believe? Now, isn't that the question that we want people to ask us? And we care about bringing the gospel to the world, isn't it? I mean, when that happens, you just, you know, if you're a baseball player, it's like low and over the plate. Um, that's, that's perfect. You want people to ask you, what, do you, what is it that you believe? And when they see our weeping heart in the community, then it stirs up the question, why? Why do you weep for the community? Why are you like this? And in, in doing so, we open the possibility of, of the gospel conversation we can speak the truth into. I see it over and over. I saw it yesterday. Had a conversation with a neighbor. You see it in their face. Had a conversation with a neighbor. You see it. You see the grace and truth dynamic working together over and over again. It's a powerful, powerful combination. And there becomes a kind of a cognitive, I love this phrase, cognitive dissonance. When, when people see somebody behaving in such a loving way, you, they can see the weeping in the heart, and yet they know they believe something different. It sort of shakes up in a person's mind their beliefs, and they, they come and ask this question, who, who are you? What do you believe? Why do you live in the way that you live. And when we, when you are in your workplace and you're raining down favor and grace upon your coworkers, and you're opening your heart to them and giving them a window into the Christ-like heart that God is forming in you by 
helping them when they're in need or being the listening ear or being present in their lives, uh, um, extending grace and forgiveness when, when everything would point that you would do the opposite. When, when people see that heart, then they're going to ask you the question, who are you and what do you believe? And, and you, will, you will have opportunity to speak truth into that moment. And, and you will be reflecting the character of Jesus Christ, who both wept over Jerusalem and spoke truth into Jerusalem. It's a powerful combination of grace and truth. And, and when you and your home groups, as you, you go up, you, you meet together and you, you connect with one another and you form loving relationships together and you open your hearts to one another, you look for opportunities to serve one another. And then maybe in your apartment building or with your neighbors or, or with the people that you know, you figure out ways that you can serve them and together pray for them to lift up their concerns and people can see that your heart is for them, that, that Christ has melted away the hardness in your heart and you do actually love them because of Jesus Christ. When people see that, then they're going to want to ask, what is it about? And you will have opportunity to speak truth into that context. This is a powerful combination of grace and truth. And when we as a church, we go out and we do count me in, or we're taking care of the, the homeless on the bulb. And please, by the way, continue to pray for that, that work that we're in the midst of. And I watch Andrew every week, uh, and, and, and it's painful to be in the, in the crucible of addressing homelessness. It, the problems are intractable, it's frustrating, it's difficult, and he's sitting in that every week. Pray for Andrew as he sits in that every week. He is, in some respects, the, the expression of our heart, our weeping heart in the community. And what's happening, though, is that people see that and they go, wow, what is that about? And we have an opportunity to speak truth into that context. Well, we believe this. We believe it's nothing about us. We're not special in any way. But Jesus Christ is special. And he's changing our hearts and helping us to love others. And as we do so, we believe we should express that in tangible ways. And we don't have the strength to do it. And we mess up and we're self-centered. We don't want to do it. But Jesus forgives us when we step out to do it, and he gives us the strength to do it, and he helps us to do it. And, and, and now we're talking about Jesus Christ and the conversation of his change. That's the power of the grace of God, the favor that we extend, and the truth of God being combined together. And we walk out in, in that, and we get a fresh hearing for the gospel, especially in a place like this. But let me say this, it's also a difficult, it's a powerful combination, grace and truth, but it's a very difficult combination as well. To love, to, to love broken people and hold on to your vision for how things should be is a very challenging task, right? You could love broken people and just not really care that they change. Or you could not love them and just kind of stand on the sidelines and bark at them and tell them what they should do. But to really get involved in people's lives, in their brokenness, and hold on to the vision of how things should be is a very painful place to be. That's why parenting is so hard. Really. Because you love this child so much, but you're not willing to let go of what you know to be true about how things are supposed to be. And children, by nature, don't understand that. They're messed up and they make mistakes. And it drives you crazy. It tears you up on the inside. Because you want so badly for them to capture and to embody the vision of how life is supposed to be. And you just can't write them off because your heart's connected. 
but you can't let go of, of the vision because you know if you do, it won't help them at all. That's why it's so painful to be the crucible where grace and truth meet together. And when Jesus Christ became that nexus point for grace and truth, where did it take him? It took him to the cross. That's where he ended up. Grace, the cross is where grace and truth meet together. Romans 3 tells us that on the cross, Jesus was both justifying us and being, and being the... Well, let me read it to you so I get the exact wording. Uh, it was to show his righteousness at this present time so that he might be just and the justifier. So there's the, he would be just, he'd be truthful about the way the world is supposed to be holding on to that vision for the kingdom that God has set for us, holding on to that vision, Jesus was, was not letting it go. He was being just and the justifier, the one who loved so profoundly that he was willing to give up his life on the cross so that we could be justified. Do you see that? Grace and truth meeting together, kissing the nexus point at the cross, and that's why it hurts so bad, and that's why it hurts so bad for us, when we go out into our families and into our communities and we embody grace and truth, it puts us on the cross. Because we're going to open our hearts to these people. And we're going to allow the weeping compassion of Christ to ooze out of us for their sake. And then there's going to be a moment of truth in that. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to step up and maybe speak a hard word, or take a stand, or offer our bodies for them to help. That's the path of the cross. That's the grace and truth. And it's, it's a painful one. It's a powerful one, but it's a painful one. But let's not forget something happened on the other side of the cross, right? The resurrection. And so it's a good one. And God's faithfulness is on us. As God's faithfulness was on Jesus Christ as he stood at that nexus point and he offered himself in grace and truth, he offered himself, Jesus, faith, God's faithfulness was on Jesus Christ and it will be on you as well. In that moment, when you place yourself at the crossroads of grace and truth, God's Faithfulness will be on you. Now, there's going to be only way, one way that we can succeed in being that follower of Jesus who stands at the nexus point between those two. And that is as if we remind ourselves to allow Jesus to pour his grace and truth on us first. Okay? You can't be strengthened to be like Jesus in the community, in your workplace, in your family, to be the embodiment of grace and truth. You can't be strengthened to do that without letting Christ rain down his grace and his truth upon you, first of all. First of all, his truth. When Jesus comes to us with things that we don't like, we have a choice to make. Are we going to accept what he's doing in our lives, or are we going to go and find a Judas to hire to kill him in our lives? That's what the, that's what the religious elite did in this moment. They, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like him being on the throne. They didn't like 
who he was, and so they went to find a Judas to hire, right? So they could do away with him. And they eventually succeeded in doing so. And the question for us is, when Jesus comes to you in a truthful kind of a way, he enters into the temple of your life and says, it's not the way it's supposed to be. You need to fix it. How will you respond? How will I respond? With that humble receptivity? Or will I look to get my money bag and hire Judas to kill Jesus' influence in my life? That's the deep, profound question of how we respond to the truthfulness of Christ. And if we're going to be empowered to be grace and truth in the community, we have to first be humbled to receive the truthfulness of Christ in our lives, even when he's speaking hard things that we don't like into our lives. And that's what the Bible does. If you read the Bible, you will hear things that you don't like because they're going to ask you to change your life. They're going to ask you to refine and melt your heart. It's going to ask you to give up things that you love. The Bible comes as truth, the truth of Christ. And the question is, how are we going to respond? Let me just remind us this. You can't win trying to kill Jesus in your life. You can't win hiring Judas because they tried that and Jesus died on the cross and God raised him from the dead. You can't win. A little bit later in chapter 20, we're going to read this about Jesus. Verse 17, chapter 20. But he, Jesus looked directly at them, the people that he was talking to, and he said, what then, is, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And listen to this. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. You either build your house on the cornerstone or the cornerstone crushes you. Those are your only options. That's the truth of Jesus Christ. Either you build your house on it or it will crush you. That's what the cornerstone does. And so there's a certain sense in which we can fight, we can try and hire a Judas, we can try and get out from under Jesus' uh, desire for us. It's not going to work. We have to submit to the truthfulness of Jesus Christ and to let him speak into our lives as he does over and over again through Scripture. But we also have to let him minister his grace to us. This summer I was down in San Diego uh, where my parents live and where I grew up, and I had my bike with me, and I've wanted for a long time to ride my bike up uh, Mount Palomar Mountain, which is one of the higher mountains, uh, Don's ridden up it, that's why I just said yes. Um, it's one of the higher mountains in the area. In, in California, you can ride up Great Climb, uh, Palomar Mountain. And I was so excited, I've been preparing for this, preparing for it. Got on my bike from my parents' house, started riding towards the mountain. It's 5,600 feet high, uh, and so it's going to be a long climb. It was cloudy, and it was cool, and I went through this one part, and the rain was, the mist was actually coming down. Uh, and so I was soaking wet, and because of all that, I stopped drinking. I wasn't hot, I was soaking wet, so I didn't think to drink, right? I get to the foot of the mountain finally, and I come out, the sun comes out, it's blazing hot, and I haven't been drinking for about 30 miles. And I started to climb the mountain, and I knew it as soon as I got on the mountain. I was dehydrated. 
done. I inched my way to the top, embarrassed by how long it took me to get to the top. Um, didn't even want to look on Strava, which is sort of this little thing that keeps track of how fast you go. Because I had totally bonked. And why was it? Because I didn't drink all the way out there. Because the, the environment tricked me into thinking I didn't need it. And the grace of God is like that. It's like the cool drink that if you continually drink from it, it will enable you to keep going. But if you forget and you don't draw on the grace of God, the unmerited favor that's upon you, you will bonk in terms of uh, cycling. You will spiritually bonk. And, and you will not be able to continue this awesome task that we've been given to be the embodiment of Christ in the world. Without grace, you cannot do it. Grace is not the, the favor of God, this this message of grace is not just for the beginner Christian. It's for all of us and every day. We need it. We need to rest in the grace of Jesus Christ over and over again. And so I want to ask you as I finish up this morning, where is there guilt and shame hiding in the corners of your soul this morning? Where is there guilt and where is there shame hiding in the corners of your soul this morning? And you have not been drinking regularly from the grace of of God, Because Jesus declared, there is therefore now no condemnation, actually Paul wrote this in Jesus Christ, uh, about Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation in Jesus Christ, and yet we go through condemning ourselves over and over again because of the things that we've done, the relationships that we mishandled this week, um, the, the repeated sin that we can't seem to get out of, the bitterness or jealousy or pride that, that swirls around or lurks in our souls, um, the eyes that went where they weren't supposed to go, and we think about these things and we, 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 we labor and labor under the guilt and the shame and we're not drinking from the grace. Right? This morning, we need to take another drink from the grace. We stay hydrated so we can continue this awesome, awesome task that God has given us to be like Jesus, the nexus point of grace and truth in this world that so desperately needs somebody to weep over it and somebody to speak truth into it. That's what this world needs. And that is us. That's who we are but we've got to draw from the truth of Christ and the grace of Christ. Lord, would you help us this morning? Maybe we're laboring this morning under guilt and shame that has wrecked us. We're broken. Maybe, maybe we need to do business around the concept of truth. Maybe there's an area of our lives that uh, is coming to our minds right now that we have been shoving to the side. We've tried to hire a Judas and kill that part of Jesus as he speaks into our lives. Um, we come before you with those, those, the, the need for grace and, and the need to, to receive your truth. And we come before you this morning, we just declare to you, Lord, be grace and truth to us. Be our Lord and Savior. Be the one who forgives us our sin and the one who corrects our sin as well and guides us into newness. That we might become more and more the people of God 
who live in this world as salt and light, who, who win a hearing for the gospel because because people look in and they see this rare combination of a weeping heart and a strong resolve, a, a deep love for the broken people around us and a, and a strength of conviction about what's true and what's right and what's good. Lord, wed those together in our souls, we pray this morning. Wed them together in our home groups as we gather and places of grace and truth, and wed them together as a congregation in the heart of what makes us progress and move forward. We know you'll use that for your glory. It's all for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you forward this morning to enjoy communion.